Three days after leaving Gergovia, Caesar and his army arrive at the River Allier. After rebuilding a bridge over this river, they cross and on the other side meet with two Aedui leaders named Eporodorix and Viridomaris. These were the same two men Caesar had sent to ride out before the Aedui food column to prove that he hadn't actually massacred them. These two prominent men of the Aedui tribe tell Caesar that Litavicus had set out with all of his cavalry to rouse the Aedui against Rome and against Caesar. And Litavicus was the man who had led the food convoy a few episodes back and had started the massacre of Roman citizens by lying that Caesar had massacred the Aedui cavalry. And Litavicus had ran off to join Vercingetorix when Caesar had exposed this as a lie. Well, these two men, Eporodorix and Viridomaris, then tell Caesar that it's imperative that he allow them to leave the Roman army so they can reach the Aedui territory first and affirm the tribe's loyalty before Litavicus can flip them and turn the tribe against Rome and against Caesar. Now, Caesar says in the Gallic commentaries that he was already pretty certain of Aedui treachery and he expected that sending these men back to their homeland would only speed up that treachery. But even still, he decides to send these men back to their homeland among the Aedui, as he felt that holding them prisoner would only cause insult or give the Aedui the impression that he had something to fear from them. And this is a fascinating glimpse into Caesar's policy of clemency. He continually forgives and shows mercy to and pretends to trust people who he knows are enemies or people that he knows will behave treacherously. And you could almost say this is a lack of judgment on Caesar's part or a character flaw. But it's also one of those qualities about Caesar that often makes him easy to root for. And certainly Augustus, Caesar's successor and adopted son, will turn his back on this policy of clemency and will behave much more ruthlessly toward his enemies. And in the civil wars, Julius Caesar will often have to fight men again and again because he keeps defeating them, forgiving them, and then setting them free with the understanding or agreement that they won't fight against him in the future. Of course, they have no intention of keeping their word, and Caesar almost certainly knows this. So why does he forgive them, and why does he make a show of trusting them? Well, I think it's exactly as Caesar says. He wants to show that he has nothing to fear from them. He defeated them once, and he can defeat them again, and again if need be. It's a sort of maddening self-confidence, where he is making things harder on himself in order to show how great he is, or perhaps in order to drive home to his enemies that he truly is invincible and can't be defeated. And of course, that oversimplifies things, and his policy of clemency is more complex than just a desire to show that his enemies don't worry him. Caesar is also attempting to gain the moral high ground and to win hearts and minds. But we'll talk more about that once the civil wars come. 
So after giving a speech to the two Idoe leaders where he reminds them of everything he and Rome have done for them, he dismisses them and allows them to go back to their home territory. Eperodorix and Viridomaris, the two men who have been dismissed, immediately go to Noviodunum, a town of the Idoe. Now, Noviodunum is also where Caesar is keeping all of the hostages he has taken in Gaul. It's also where he has stored the baggage for his army as well as his own personal baggage. Noviodunum, therefore, has all of the funds of the army, most of its stockpiled food, and the army records. Caesar even has a large number of horses being stored at Noviodunum, which he had bought from Spain and Italy to use in the Gallic Wars. Well, once Eperodorix and Viridomaris arrive in Noviodunum, they're given an updated picture on the state of their tribe, the Idoe. At Bibract, the most important town of the Idoe, Lidovicus had been received by the Idoe and had met with the Virgobret, who is the elected leader for the year for the Idoe, and the Senate of the Idoe. And after this meeting, the Idoe had sent an official embassy to Vercingetorix to make an alliance with him. And so it would appear the Idoe have made their decision and are abandoning Rome, abandoning Caesar, to join Vercingetorix in this rebellion. Things grow more dire by the day for Caesar and the Romans. Historian Adrian Goldsworthy points out that at this point, almost all of the Celtic or Gallic tribes and most of the Belgic peoples are arrayed against Caesar. This is a formidable coalition. Author Tom Holland writes about Caesar and his army's resilience during this period in his dramatic way. He writes, quote, Whatever his, meaning Caesar's, doubt and weariness, his outward show of confidence remained as sovereign as ever. In Caesar's energy, there was something demonic and sublime. Touched by boldness, perseverance, and a yearning to be the best, it was the spirit of the Republic at its most inspiring and lethal. No wonder that his men worshipped him, for they too were Roman and felt privileged to be sharing in their general's great adventure. Battle-hardened by years of campaigning, they were in no mood to panic now at the peril of their situation. Their faith in Caesar and their own invincibility held good. End quote. Getting back to Eperodorix and Viridomaris, these two men learn of Lidovicus's meeting with their senate and with their Virgobret and the embassy sent to Vercingetorix, and they can tell which way the wind is blowing in their tribe. They then look around at all the valuable stuff Caesar has stored in Noviodunum, and it all seems like too good of an opportunity to pass up. So, they start killing the Roman guards on duty, and then start killing the Roman traders there as well. And presumably, they're not doing all of this stuff by themselves. They have clients or dependents helping them. Then comes the fun part. They start dividing all the money and horses among themselves. They send all of the hostages to Bibrax so that the Idoe will now have the hostages Caesar has worked so hard to take from the various tribes of Gaul. And since Noviodunum is on a river, they start piling grain into boats, and when they have no more room in the boats, they start spoiling and burning the remaining grain. In fact, 
Eventually, they realize that they can't hold Nobiodunum against the Romans, so they burn the town down altogether. Noviodunum is on the Loire River, which Caesar needs to cross. So the next thing Epidorix and Viridomaris do is raise a local force and set it to guard any potential points where the river can be forded by Caesar and his army. And their job is made easier by the fact that it's springtime and the snowmelt has the river running high. Caesar, resorting to one of his most effective and most frequent tactics, force marches his army night and day to arrive at the Loire before anyone expects him. Soon, Caesar locates a spot to ford the river, but it's deep, and the current is swift. So he has his cavalry line up in a line upriver to break the strength of the current for the infantry. His infantry then cross the river downstream from the cavalry through chest-deep water with their shields and weapons held above their heads to keep them dry. Caesar and his legions are relentless as always. Caesar's appearance in crossing the river is so swift that the Gauls are taken utterly by surprise and end up fleeing the Roman advance altogether. And once across the river... Caesar is able to find plenty of food in the fields and some cattle for his army to eat. At this point, after collecting food for his army, Caesar marches to link up with Labienus, who has the other half of the Roman army and is coming from a victory over a number of Gallic tribes near modern Paris. And once these two forces unite, Caesar now has 35 to 40,000 infantry, plus some auxiliary under his command. His army is finally whole again. Meanwhile, the Idui are flexing their newly free muscles. They're sending out embassies in every direction and using favors, influence, and bribery to win the support of Gallic tribes. And where these methods don't work, they threaten to harm the hostages they had stolen from Caesar to bring waverers into line. Now they decide that Having joined this whole rebellion, they ought to be in control of the rebellion, and one of their own ought to be supreme military commander of the rebellion. So no sooner have the Adui joined this rebellion than they're trying to steal the command from Vercingetorix. So an assembly of the whole of Gaul is called Epibract. And according to Caesar, hordes of Gauls flock there from every quarter. Then they put the decision to a popular vote and of course, the charismatic Vercingetorix wins unanimously. And that always confuses me, because you would assume that at least the Idaoi voted for their own candidate, right? Well, after losing, the Idaoi are angry that they don't get to be leader. Caesar writes on this in his commentaries, quote, The Idaoi took being ousted from supreme control very badly, bewailing their change of fortunes, and began to miss the favor Caesar had shown toward them. End quote. You can almost hear the satisfaction in Caesar's writing. It's like seeing your ex isn't enjoying life with the partner they left you for. Vercingetorix, now confirmed in his command, orders for a force of 15,000 cavalry to gather. He also orders the Adawi and some other tribes to attack the Roman province of Transalpine Gaul in the hope that some of the Gallic tribes there 
will take this opportunity to join the rebellion and throw off their Roman yoke. After all, one of these tribes, the Allobroges, had rebelled against Rome only a decade ago. In fact, Vercingetorix secretly sent envoys to the Allobroges with offers of bribes to their leaders, promising their tribe control of all of Transalpine Gaul if they joined the rebellion. And in attacking Transalpine Gaul, Vercingetorix is attempting to seize the initiative and put Caesar on the back foot. But despite this attack on the Roman province, he also reiterates that starving the Romans out is still his main strategy. This is a strategy that, according to historian Adrian Goldsworthy, Roman military slang referred to as kicking the enemy in the stomach. Flashback to Caesar, and he is well aware that there is a significant disparity in cavalry between his army and Vercingetorix. And he needs to fix this, or at least decrease the disparity. There's a big issue, though, in that he's cut off from his provinces by the Gauls, so he can't expect any reinforcements from there. So Caesar comes up with a radical solution. For years now, he's been unsuccessfully trying to teach the Germanic tribes to stay on their side of the Rhine. Stop coming into Gaul. Now, Caesar sends messengers over the Rhine to some of the tribes that he says he had subdued to demand cavalry and light-armed infantry to fight alongside the cavalry. And in response the Germanic tribes send a sort of legendary force in the story of the Gallic Wars, and they're legendary for a few different reasons. First, an unknown number of what I imagine as hulking Germans show up at Caesar's camp, and they're riding very tiny ponies. These were the breed of horse or pony customarily ridden in Germania, but Caesar is not impressed. He calls these horses or ponies wholly unsuitable. So, Caesar takes what you might call proper horses from his military tribunes, equites, and veterans, and mounts the Germans on these. And though this is an inauspicious start, this small force of German cavalry will win multiple astounding victories against the Gauls, mostly while being heavily outnumbered. And some of these victories may even have changed the course of the Gallic Wars. Once Caesar has his new Germanic cavalry force, he marches in the direction of Transalpine Gaul to bring relief to his province. Now, in hindsight, Transalpine Gaul won't need Caesar's help, but of course, Caesar doesn't know this yet. You see, Gaius Julius Caesar, our Caesar, the one that we've been talking about for the entirety of this podcast, has a distant cousin, Lucius Julius Caesar, and Lucius Julius Caesar has gathered a force of 22 cohorts to defend the province, and these forces are able to deal with the invasion. And in case you're curious, Lucius Julius Caesar is himself an ex-consul, but was choosing to serve under Gaius Julius Caesar as one of his legates. And one more fun fact, the modern French region of Provence gets its name from ancient Rome. In ancient Roman times, it was common to refer to Transalpine Gaul, the province that Vercingetorix is attacking, simply as Provincia Romana, which means the Roman province. Eventually, this was shortened to simply Provincia, 
and Caesar refers to it this way all the time in the Gallic Wars commentaries. Now, the Latin nickname Provincia eventually became the modern name of Provence, by which it's known today. Getting back to our story, Caesar is marching down toward Transalpine Gaul to bring relief to his province. And there's an enormous amount of pressure on Caesar at this point. He's coming fresh off a lost battle at Gergovia, his province is under attack, his Gallic allies have abandoned him, and now he's being forced to run back to his province. And yes, he's trying to protect his province, but the perception in Gaul is that he's fleeing Free Gaul back home to the safety of Transalpine Gaul after all these setbacks that he's faced. Classics professor Philip Freeman in his book Julius Caesar talks about what is potentially hanging over Caesar's head if he doesn't find a way to turn things around and to do so soon. Freeman writes, quote, The Senate, led by Cato and the Optimates, would gleefully strip him, meaning Julius Caesar, of his command. The remainder of his miserable life would be spent defending himself against punitive lawsuits or in wretched exile in some distant land. End quote. Well, Vercingetorix learns of Caesar's retreat, or march to Transalpine Gaul, depending on your viewpoint, and he is determined to keep the initiative and stay on the offensive. So Vercingetorix marches his army along with his large cavalry force to intercept the Romans, and within three days, the Gauls are camped nine miles from Caesar's camp. At this point, Vercingetorix summons his cavalry commanders to a meeting. He tells them that the moment of victory is at hand. The Romans are fleeing Gaul for the safety of their province. But this isn't enough, he says. They need a good kick on the rear on the way out so they don't come back. Otherwise, Vercingetorix says, they'll simply return with reinforcements and prolong the war. So, Vercingetorix tells them they must attack the Roman column as it marches, slowed down by its baggage train. This will force the Romans to make a choice. Either defend the baggage train and slow the march of the army to a crawl, or abandon the baggage train and leave all their possessions and food to the Gauls. At this, the Gallic cavalry cry out that they want to take a solemn oath, no man is to be received beneath a roof or have access to his children, his parents, or his wife, unless he rides twice through the Roman column. And so they take this oath to inspire themselves and to make sure that no man is hanging back from the fighting. The next day, Vercingetorix splits his cavalry into three forces. Two of these attack the Roman column from its flanks. The third attacks the front of the Roman column, to stop its forward progress. The second Caesar realizes that they are under attack, he divides his heavily outnumbered cavalry into three groups and orders them to attack the Gallic cavalry. And according to Caesar, there was fighting everywhere at once. The legionaries soon bring the baggage together and form a square around it. And during this fight, Caesar is everywhere. Whenever he sees his cavalry being hard-pressed, he sends out infantry to support them. The infantry stop the pursuit of the Gallic cavalry, 
and give Caesar's cavalry time to reform and to get back into the fight. As the fight rages on, eventually, it's Caesar's ferocious German cavalry on the right flank who are able to seize a ridge of high ground. From here, they're able to rout the Gallic force facing them and chase them right down to the river where Vercingetorix and his infantry are waiting and kill a number of these men. The other two Gallic cavalry forces witness this and become afraid that they will be surrounded, and so they flee. Soon, Vercingetorix and the entire Gallic army are fleeing. Caesar's cavalry pursue. Eight of his ten legions are sent in pursuit behind the cavalry. The remaining two legions stay behind to guard the baggage. Fleeing Gauls are cut down left, right, and center by the pursuers. In Caesar's words, there was slaughter everywhere. Caesar claims that 3,000 of the Gallic rearguard are killed. Caesar even manages to capture a number of Idoe nobles who he knows personally. One of these is even the candidate for Virgobret that he ruled against a few episodes ago. You can imagine Caesar's satisfaction at capturing these men. The Roman pursuit of the Gallic forces continues until dark. Writing on this defeat for Vercingetorix, ancient writer Dio Cassius singles out the Germans' contribution. He writes, quote, His, meaning Vercingetorix's, defeat was due in part to the Germans, who were acting as allies to the Romans. For with their unquenchable enthusiasm and their mighty bodies, which added strength to their daring, they succeeded in breaking through the enclosing ranks. End quote. After fleeing that disastrous battle, Vercingetorix marches his army directly for the fateful hilltop town of Elysia. The next day, Caesar follows with his army and makes camp outside of Elysia. Sensing an opportunity, Caesar immediately begins to reconnoiter the area. And after getting a lay of the land, Caesar encourages his men to steel themselves for the task ahead and sets them to circumvallate Elysia. In our next episode, the climactic battle of Elysia will begin in earnest. Of all the battles Caesar has waged in Gaul, this one battle, the Battle of Elysia, is remembered above them all as his most famous battle. In fact, it's the most famous battle Caesar will fight in the entirety of his life, including the Civil War. It's unique and memorable for many reasons, and in a lot of ways, it's a test of wills between Julius Caesar and Vercingetorix. But that we will cover in our next episode of the March of History. Thank you to all of you for listening, and thank you especially to our patrons on Patreon and our PayPal contributors. All of you are heroes in my eyes. And if you want to contribute money to support the March of History, the link to our PayPal and Patreon are in the show notes of every episode. Finally, we have our end-of-episode quote, and it is as follows, quote, the only limit to our realization of tomorrow will be our doubts of today. End quote. And that is a quote by Franklin D. Roosevelt. As for my part, 
I wish for all of you listeners to banish your doubts of today so that you can realize the tomorrow you were destined to have. And with that, I'll talk to all of you on the next episode of the March of History.